Michael, live on the pod from the Highlands. Richie Gray, how are you doing, mate? You're right. Very well, Rusty. Very well from uh, from Gala Shields here in the beautiful Scottish borders, uh, as possibly every other coach has been doing for the last four weeks. Is pretty much on about five Zoom calls a day, going through multiple hard drives, trying to sort out every clip you've ever had in your life to give yourself some sort of normality. I'm missing coaching, to be honest, but things like this are great. Mate, cool. That's similar to me, really, been trying to sort out all my slides, tidy up some stuff, and, mate, you've got a cool little office going on there that hopefully I will have in, in a few months as well. Well, so. this, is the, this is the world hub. It all comes in here, and then I've got the analysis screen up here, and I've got the whiteboards, and it looks like I know what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> you've definitely given that impression. Mate, great, great to have you on. It's been really, um, I've enjoyed the last kind of few times we've spoken, especially around the world rugby stuff, and we'll, we'll definitely delve into that at some stage. Uh, for people who, um, who don't know about you, do you want to kind of share your journey, how you've ended up in a garage in Gallows Shields? Oh, geez, quick one. Uh, 49 years old, uh, ex-physical education teacher, never taught straight into rugby one year before it went pro. Uh, Scottish Rugby Union, 12 years, development officer, started with a good old bag of balls and cones, trooping my way around the north of Scotland, uh, then into coach education, then into academies, then into pro rugby, border reavers, then sadly we all lost our jobs, the reavers uh, got chopped, so 55 of us found ourselves in the dole queue. Uh, kept in rugby, in an academy position, college, created Border Academy of Sport. Uh, then took the big decision to go back into pro rugby again, South Africa. Three and a half years there with the Springboks, then the Blitzbox 7. Back to my own country, Scotland, for two years with Vern Cotter. And then I've been down in Montpellier for the last three. Uh, on the top of that, been right methodology try to change the game for the better. And obviously, I think now I'm up at about 27 different pieces of technical training equipment, all relating to tackle, collision. Uh, and the big, the big thing, obviously, was I made the decision to come away from being a forwards coach and uh, just concentrate on contact and collision area. Did that about eight, nine years ago and been all over the world, NFL, rugby union, rugby league. Uh, very, very lucky. Nice. Good. Uh, that was a, a great summary. And lots Let's of sum up that. <laughs> of, uh, it sounds like Fletcher's journey. So started out as a development officer. What, uh, what, was, uh, what, what was Richie Gray like back then? What would, uh, what would his coaching have looked like? She's very style A orientated, typical Scottish physical education. The ironic thing was Fletch was a development officer at the Falcons when I was development officer uh, in the borders. So, we met each other many, many years ago. That was when Paul McKinnon was down yeah. with the Falcons as well. Uh, Waltz was there. Uh, you're actually the only one that I only met recently in the last two or three years we've met, but Peter and, and, and Fletch were there. So it's a small, small world rugby, but yeah, quite style A orientated. Uh, Sergeant Major, do as I say. You know, we all came through that sort of Jim Telfer, Richie Dixon uh, group. And, you know, you thought, you thought that was the way to do it then, how, how things have changed. On saying that, there's still a need for it now and again. Uh, I'm not, I will admit that I sometimes go into style A, 
now and again, but you know, hopefully a lot broader in my whole coaching and, and outlook. And you know, as you as we've talked about Rusty on many occasions, I learn every day. I love learning. I love to speak about the game, talk. You know, what you give if you give out, you get back. You know, and I, I've never been one for holding stuff in and protecting intellectual property and stuff like that. Just just talk about it, make the game better. And I've always said it, IP is you. You know, that's what intellectual property is to me. It's, it's you. Anybody can give anybody's drills and whatever, but there's only, you, you coach the way you coach, uh, I coach the way I coach, and, and, and that's it, you know. Nice. Well, it seems like some people all over the world are enjoying your IP. What, uh, let's pick a couple of places out. Tell me about NFL. What, uh, what's been going on there? Ah, huge 2016. I got invited down for five days to work with Miami Dolphins coaches. Five days led into signing for a year with them. Pretty much 10 days a month working with the linebackers. Uh, just just it's so lucky to be involved at that level and just to see how it all operates. And it's an absolute machine. Uh, very incredibly scheme system orientated huge on stats, percentages, you know, that is how they coach. Big weakness possibly is in technical skills development, not really enough time to do it. Sports got huge challenges, as ours have, especially in the whole collision, contact, concussion area. Uh, and it just, it kind of shows to you, Rusty, and we're the same, that Sometimes when you come from a different sport and you're allowed just to immerse yourself into a whole new world and you're with coaches that are very open, the amount of things that make complete common sense to me but they've never thought about is incredible. You know, and I've had the same in rugby when we've brought in basketball or handball coaches and the guy at the end of your session will turn around and say, why didn't you do that? And you think, geez, why did I never think of that? So I was allowed to do that in Miami for a year and phenomenal you know incredible athletes uh, but very very specific and human chess played at 100 miles an hour by some of the biggest units I've ever coached in my life. <laughs> what uh, what type of naive expertise did you give them so what kind of things were yeah you know, so, this is weird. I, this, this, this is incredible because I'm always a great watcher of training and obviously training aids and technical training aids are just, they've kind of fascinated me for years and how we can make a player get to the end game in maybe a more safer performance type environment. Are training aids good? Are they bad? What do they bring? The whole thing. And when you look at the training aids there in the NFL, they actually brought around very bad technical accuracy for example most of the tackle bags were incredibly tight so you couldn't grip them they were heavy at the bottom so they they fell and you made contact with them in the wrong way and if this is the only thing you've been hitting for the last 10-15 years then there's there's got to be challenges there uh, obviously the huge challenge is they're not allowed to have physical contact with each other it's very very minimal so you've got players that finish their season in December that don't physically tackle again for close on 22 weeks. So you think, no wonder there's a problem because it's like, it's like us finishing our season 
and not doing any contact work for 22 weeks. So you're pretty much retraining the body every single season in an area that's actually given the sport the most problems. It, it just beggars belief for me. So there's huge changes could be made in that sport, huge changes. When we were in Paris, you, you actually spoke a bit about how they trained. I remember you telling a story of the, the guys that were having to put their heads in ice baths and it was blowing my mind, if I'm honest. Yeah, that, that, that was the old school guys that used to tell me. Some of the old coaches used to say, Rich, you know, after... thankfully it doesn't happen, but in the good old days, they were putting their heads in the ice after because just the constant collision. And remember, they didn't have the... The technology and the helmets, and it was it was literally a, a metal helmet on your head, and, and off you went. So, but you know, Rusty, you think of the way we coached as well. You asked the question, "Have my coaching changed?" I was live all the time, full on. There was you had shields, and that was it. Uh, you know, the harder you could hit a shield, meant the better the player you were. You know, when you think back now, it's just horrific, and we were full on live lacerations, ligament injuries, chip bones, and it was just it was just seen as a sort of badge of honour, you know, and no wonder when you started to figure out as a coach the best way of winning games is to keep your players healthy, then it dawned on you that maybe maybe I've got it wrong here, you know. So, you know, we were all we were all about that and we just we were so naive because we didn't understand the medicine and the science and behind what we were doing. Even I still, you know, in this last four or five weeks, I've been up in my attics trawling through all the old literature that you had. And I found one of my first weight sessions that I did as a player. I was just, I thought, man, no wonder I destroyed my back and my knees are wrecked. <laughs> you know, geez, you just shake your head, don't you? You know? Yes, it definitely moves on. What what would you take from NFL? So what what did you see in NFL that you thought rugby could learn learn from that? Yeah, just absolute organization and time specification of on the money for their session. You know, literally everything was timed. It was it was done at absolute precision, but then you have to because you've got so many numbers on the field. <laughs> so it's it's literally incredibly organised, which in some ways takes away from the the spontaneity of it as well. But because there's so many bodies and there's so many moving parts in the NFL, I was I was blown away by the organisation of sessions and the planning that went into them, and then. The next thing is the work the players put in. We, in rugby union, I, I cringe when I sometimes see some of my pro players complaining that they maybe have to come back in for, you know, half an hour to watch a bit of video. In the, in the NFL, you're in at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, you leave the building at 5 and 6 at night. And I'll be honest, there's hardly a spare minute. It's, it's install, in a classroom, watching the screen, getting it right, going out, prep, doing it, making sure you get it right, because if you don't, you could be out of a job. Back in, review, back out, prep, review, install. It is incredible work ethic. The coaches, you know, are leaving at midnight, some sleep in their offices, which I, don't, which I maybe don't think is the most healthy. But just the time is so intense for that season. 
And then you can just about see the coaches at the end of camps, they're burst. And then at the end of the season, it's like a sort of, you know, the brain's just about to switch off and have to go and lie on the beach somewhere. But incredibly intensity for short periods of time, but players that cope with it. And I think that's where our players could really learn a lot about uh, just the, the coping of stress, pressure, intensity, travel, play, you know, all of those things you can learn a lot from. Yeah, they would be pretty, I mean, they would do a lot of, they'd be pretty good at training. I, I think it's as well something I've noticed with the best teams I've watched coaches that even though in rugby, which is a slightly more unstructured game because we don't have the stop start of American football, even the coaches just are really well planned behind. They know what, yeah. you've got 45 people on the pitch, then actually you've got to have some semblance of what type of stuff might happen in order to ensure yeah. that maximum learning on the pitch. Yeah, and, and also the, the detail that go into an opposition is huge. But, and this is the other thing, they've got the staff to do it. Yeah. So, you know, where we are maybe battling on with a head coach, forwards coach, scrum coach, attack, defence, you know, at the most there could be five, six, seven coaches there. You know, you're looking at 20, 20 plus, and then a backroom staff of analysts that would put, any you know international rugby team to shame so you know there's a huge amount of money in the game as we all know uh, and remember the college game is possibly bigger uh, you know I, that's what blew me away about the US I always thought this NFL was the big the big monster but college football you know size wise and passion and that's just it was it's great to be involved in and I'm obviously still involved in it now rewritten all their tackle methodology for USA football, which has been rolled out over the schools and youth programs. And I've got some big decisions to make in the next two or three months to where we go next college, uh, you know, links to the NFL, what we do next. Do we maybe work with an NFL team high performance unit and look to try and maybe develop all the return to perform protocols and try and blend technique and skills far more into the gym and playing environment than they've got at the moment. So there's some some great challenges and opportunities there. It'll it'll pay for another garage, I'm sure. What uh, <laughs> let's go somewhere else. So you you said a couple of other places. Uh, you spent time with the Blitzbook. So with the South Africa Sevens team. Um, yeah. tell me about that. I'm assuming you would have learned some cool stuff from those guys. Yeah, it, it, it was funny. I actually I've always used the Sevens environment to test out some of my kind of new techniques and tactics, you know, you can you can break them down in sevens. I've always enjoyed the sevens game, obviously. I'm from Gala Shields, so you're four miles from Melrose, where it all started. We were always brought up on sevens in the borders. It was a big thing. Every club had their sevens tournament. But when I started with the Springboks, I actually, by default, really, I met Neil Powell, uh, who was just starting out as the coach then, and I said, listen, is there any chance on my off days I can just come and help you? Uh, and then it might develop into something else. Because I was only really meant to be there with the Springbok side. And then because I was based in Cape Town quite a lot, I just said, why don't we just do the both? So that was right right at the start of that whole Frankie Horn, kind of Cecil Africa, Branco Dupree era, really, right at the very beginning. Uh, so we just looked at all the contact and collision and how we could maybe make it different there. Because you got to remember, Rusty, they were the, 
they were the smallest team physically on the circuit by a mile. You know, when you looked at the size of them, they were not big men at all. But mm. technically, over the two or three years, it just became a huge thing for them. And I've always said the only way you ever make a difference with contact and collision is one, you must make it important, and then two, you must measure it. So that became a huge thing, and, and Neil was great to deal with, really took it on, and we kind of created principles around all the contact and collision for that sevens team, and they absolutely went for it. And to be honest, it showed me as well that if you, if you really do it properly, you can make a massive, massive difference. And, you know, Neil Powell should take a huge amount of credit for that, but also the players, they really bought into it in a huge way, and they're still using a lot of the a lot of the sort of techniques and tactics that we came up with way back then still being used now. So and it's great to see them have a bit of success, you know. Yeah, they were, it's a cool environment to be one of good one. We used to go back to Stellenbosch every year with the 18s and spend time there. And they're good guys. They're humble. Yeah. They work hard. Yeah. Um, and they'd be, as you say, as they're quite small, <clears throat> they'd have to be quite innovative. What um, <laughs> When you talk about... <laughs> principles around their context of what type of things are you talking about or what type of experiments yeah. did you try? Yeah. So we, I worked, I always talk about sequences in defense. So for example, we, we have, you have your tackle and then the sequence starts of the turnover, you know, the, or the attempted steal or the attempted turnover. So we, we used to work hard on creating different sequences Whereas in 15s, you could maybe use three men, and even that now is possibly one too many. But we could create sequences of tackler, what the next supporting player did, what the tackler did as he was coming out of the contest. Did he rejoin? Did he not? And then we created a whole number of techniques around about that, and then added speed, and then added fatigue. So we kind of created these principles of tactics with speed attached to them, obviously the technical skill and then the fatigue level. So we built up, developed drills that were like 35, 40, 45, 50 second drills that related to the length of time they played that made them absolutely brutal. So you would crawl out the end of that 40 second drill that had a number of different uh, contact collision techniques and tactics within it. So when you were tired, you could still be fresh, you know, and that, we worked a lot on that and we developed that sort of strategy over the two or three years and it, and it worked really, really well so that you knew when you were going into a final and the game was going for 35, 40, 50 seconds, you, you trained for it, you know. Nice, yeah, I guess coaching and they would have been good decision makers around the breakdown, so. Yeah, they were, but you know what, they were technically excellent as well. You know, you think of guys like Quagga Smith, who then went on to play for the Springboks. Cheslin Colby went on to play for the Springboks. Uh, just, you know, Kyle Brown, Frankie was excellent. And then you had, you know, Cecil, Branco, Dupree. They weren't huge men, but they were technically very, very accurate. And and good and great mindset as well, Russell. You know, they were they were tough guys. You know, they 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 got they got stuck in. You know, they sometimes we can be as technical as we want, but you just need a fighter. You know, and and they had that 
in bucket loads. They had guys that just wouldn't give up. You know, they would go and go and go. But you've got to know in your mind that you've trained to that level and you just know that the game's actually going to be easier than the training, you know? You would enjoy coaching guys like Frankie Horn and Carl Brown. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. Well, I just love guys that love the collision <laughs> and the contact. So, you know, the boys that would stay out on the field after to say, can we try more of that? That's the guys I want, you know? Fantastic. Marcel Kutzia, guys like that, you know, just... And it's funny, Rusty, like, you know, the steel, the steel now is like a gold medal. You know, if you can steal a ball now in the game, it's, you know, you get the celebration and the high fives and that sort of thing. And you got to remember, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, when you talked about stealing, they only ever talked about the open side. Oh, yeah, who's your stealer? Who's your jackler? Who's your open side? Nobody else stole. It was like, no, 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 you know the seven does that, you know, or in, in South Africa, it was the six. So it's great to see the way we've developed the game that we've got Brian Habana, Morney Stain, Pat Lambie, uh, Jean de Villiers. They were all stealing, you know, it became like a huge thing. And when you look at world rugby now, it's, an, it's a technique that every player must have. You've got to be able to be comfortable in that defensive situation where if it comes upon you know the, the chance is put in front of you you've got to take the right tool from the toolbox to slow the ball up to get your hands on the ball to steal it to get that penalty whatever well let's fast forward so <clears throat> we were just we've obviously spoken a lot about the new um well we haven't changed any laws we just probably get them <clears throat> refereed slightly differently how do you see, because we just we were talking then again about, we think it's the return of the Jackler, which is happy days. Mm. Uh, what, um, how do you see it playing out with the new interpretations? Okay, so, so obviously we were all involved in this group and this committee, and it's been a good learning experience, I'm sure you'll admit it as well, because it's incredibly difficult to change law. You know, it, it has to be a major thing before you'll change law. But, you know, as we've said, I think if we can enforce properly the current laws, then we're on the right path. And who's to say that we might maybe then have to change a law within that whole tackle contest area further down the line? But at the moment, we've not got down that route. Uh, for me, as a breakdown contact collision coach, we had to tidy the area up because it was just becoming shambolic, to be honest. And, you know, I coach in the French leagues and I watch all the different interpretations of law in and around that breakdown area from competition to competition. And, and no wonder the, the normal supporter gets confused. You know, you could be watching a super rugby game in the morning, a game of English Premiership in the afternoon and a top 14 game at night. And you're just about going to see three different ways of interpretation. So I think the key thing we've looked at as the development, as the breakdown group, is that, first and foremost, the entry to the ruck has got to be cleaned up. Uh, these side entries and guys flying across and coming at the side of people's knees, it's just, it's just not good. So that's a key. There's going to be a massive amount of pressure now on the carrier and first support to be incredibly accurate and faster, in my opinion, because if not... The jackler, if 
he or she can get their hands on the ball, and this is a big thing, don't just try and clamp it in and hold it for the penalty. You've got to give a positive picture to the referee, which is trying to lift that ball out of there. Now, people might think, well, that's, that's just the norm, is it not? But if you go back and watch games, it's not. Very rarely do you see actual hands in try and get it out of there. It's usually held in on the chest of that presenting player and you go for the penalty. So that's going to have to be trained and coached. Also, we don't need to survive the clean anymore. And this is a big thing. So your jackler goes in over the ball. That player doesn't need to survive the clean now. So that poor player doesn't need to get you know hit from about three different angles now. And then the referee awards the penalty. If the jackler's in there, showing a good picture, hands on ball or underneath ball and pulling up, then all of a sudden, whistle's gone. So it's going to speed the game up. Uh, I definitely think that as coaches, we're going to have to spend a lot more time on carrier, support techniques, accuracy, speed, and also the whole area of the jackal is, is going to become incredibly important because you can pick your time and get in there and you beat that first supporting player you're pretty much going to get the penalty yeah and then also I guess the other stuff was really the, the guy taking the ball in so the ball player actually being releasing the ball immediately so even having multiple roles yeah sevens has has gone down harsh on that but actually yeah we might we might need to start thinking about about what we're coaching around that guy as well I know you yeah say that actually that guy might need to start thinking a bit more about his footwork because he's going to want to have to get in behind defenders. Um, And and so actually the days of just being able to run into people and go to ground is going to make, it's going to be pretty tricky these days. Yeah, it's funny, Drusty, I think uh, in some ways when you look at that, as long as you've got momentum, you can, it's my opinion, as long as you've got momentum, you can get that roll in, you you can move on the ground. It's the ones that are stopped dead, then trying by seconds because they know their support's not there by rolling onto their front, by the, the elbow crawl, as we call it. You know, there's a number of ways that you can buy yourself time. So we're trying to eliminate that. So again, it's going to make it faster. So, you know, you've just said it, carrier, foot movement, uh, getting to space, hand-to-hand rugby. You know, the best ball you can ever get is hand-to-hand you know, encouraging and coach that more. Uh, accuracy of support. The big thing that was brought up was we've got to be seen to be driving through the ruck, not just diving down on top of it. And I know there's been huge debate about the whole crook roll area and that. So the crook roll, to be honest now, will just about leave the game because if the jackler's in there and he's shown a good picture, there's no need to crook roll because the jackler will have won the battle. And also, you're trying to drive through the ruck. So it means good shoulder connection, good wrap, grip, uh, feet work. Keep your feet working in the ground, not just that closed arm and just coming down on top of the ruck. So there's a lot more technique and accuracy is going to have to be coached within this area. And it was funny when when they came out, most of the comments were, the laws haven't changed, they're just the same. And that's absolutely correct. There's been no law change at all, but it'll be the way that it's refereed and it's the way that it's going to be enforced. It's going to be the difference. Uh, and at the moment, we've been 
trying to just come up with sort of key coaching and ref points around these laws just to, so we're all doing the same thing, you know, because if the world, especially in the breakdown area, it happens 160 times plus per game, attack and defence. If we can all get some sort of uniformed approach to that, then it's really going to make a huge difference and tidy up the game, you know. Uh, so that's the challenge. Yeah, you were talking a bit about almost like creating a crib sheet for coaches and for referees. What type of yeah. thing do you, do you think will be on those? Yeah, so a crib sheet for me, you know, key things that the tackler must do and mustn't do. Uh, what is a good jackal? What is not a good jackal? What is the picture that we want painted? Uh, the reinstatement of the gate, you know, is the gate that or is it more of a funnel? So the tip of that funnel is in and around that jackler's hip area. So everything comes down there instead of coming in from the side. Uh, driving accuracy, body height work, good initial connection, driving through the breakdown. There's a lot of things that are going to have to be worked on. So ideally what we're trying to do at the moment is maybe just create some sheet that can be put out there on the back of this that coaches and refs can go, right, okay, I've got this. I know exactly what I'm trying to work on here. And just just make the whole thing simpler a bit, you know. The biggest problem is, Rusty, as you know, we are the, we are our biggest problem sometimes, coaches, because we try to overcomplicate it, you know. So let's just try and make it incredibly simple because the breakdown something that happens, as we've said, 160-plus times. Let's not make it complicated, especially for the referee. That's the guys I feel sorry for because they have to referee it. So the game's only getting faster, you know. So we have to try and make the picture easier to see for the referee. And also, as coaches, we've got to make sure that our players can can do what we're, we're wanting to see here. Nice, yeah. And one of the things that came out for me was just how aligned the referees and players were. So the players wanted a safer game. They wanted yeah cleared up. That's exactly what the referees wanted. Uh, Barnsley and Gakko were class. What was then interesting for me, and I think this is where as coaches we need to start thinking is, so the, the, the coaches in the room that were currently coaching were much more, well this is what I would do, this is how I would beat it. Here's the solution. So yeah. I mean, you've already mentioned, I mean I'm imagining we would see more footwork, we would see more people passing, we might see more people lifting off the floor. Yeah. Me and you discussed actually would nines start to enter the game or would we start to put sevens into positions of nines or whoever yeah. people are a good yeah. at a jackling the ball. Uh, yeah. What stuff are you thinking about around where the game will go as a result? Yeah, I think to, to go back <coughs> to the players' point to start with, as a player you've got about 10 seasons to, at the professional top level we're talking about to, to make your money and to stay as healthy as you can, you know. So you can see exactly now where players are coming from. They're thinking, hang on a minute, there's knees getting blown out left, right and centre at this area. You know, it's a dangerous area. Let's just get it cleaned up a bit because it's quite easy to do. So from a player's point of view, they want longevity of career. Quite, quite agree with them. I want them to have longevity of career as well because I'm coaching them. So I want them in my team every week. So that's the first thing. But where do you think the game will go? I think first and foremost, it's going to make the game faster because if you've got a big, heavy, lumbering front five, 
they, they better get themselves sorted out through the off-season because you're going to have guys coming in trying to get in between ball carrier and first support player over and over again. So that's one thing that we're going to have to sort out. So it's maybe going to make you know, these huge bulky packs. You can do that if you want, right? That's a tactic and that's, that's your choice. But you're going to have to make sure that we're far, far more accurate and aware around the ball carrier. Second thing is, I think every player must be comfortable passing off the ground. Uh, good presentation techniques done quickly and accurately. And then as we talked about it, what players sometimes find themselves in a position to steal but maybe don't because that's not their role or they've been told to do something else? Well, you'll find your nines are going to have a lot of 50-50 decisions to make because they always end up in and around that area. Uh, and also, all players are going to have to understand that the picture the referee wants to see in the jackal is hands on the ball and attempting to lift. That, that for many players, is, is totally different again because it used to be in, over, hold the ball in tight to the supporting player, boom, get the penalty. So all of a sudden, there's going to have to be more technique coached in and around that jackal area. My turn. Eddie, Eddie might get to pick Ben Curry at nine. That might be, uh, as he said, <laughs> imagine playing against a team with the Currys in. I mean... It's going to be pretty tricky to play if you haven't, as you say, if you don't have a team that can effectively move around the pitch and, and be accurate around their breakdown skills. I mean, the reality is some of those teams actually might kick more. Um, so that, I guess, is a potential unintended well, consequence of it as well, I think. You know what, Rusty, as well, I think it's going to make the tackling more accurate because, you know, there's been discussions that you now can't take off or take away the latcher because he used to be able to tackle the carrier and then the latcher got split from that carrying formation. Whereas if you're not allowed to take the latcher away, for example, then you're going to have to make sure that first tackle is incredibly accurate and then the second tackle is going to have to be accurate too because if the ball's transferred from tackle player to the support player, you're going to have to bring those players to ground as quick as you can. So... It's going to ask some questions too, in my opinion, defensively as well, especially with technique, you know. And I think that brings us on to the whole tackle area because still for me, we've not got players that are confident at tackling at every level. So I talk about three levels, level one, ankle to knee, level two, knee to hip, and then level three, hip to, you know, at the moment it's the shoulder line. So you've got to be confident at tackling at those three levels, left shoulder, right shoulder, front and back. And a lot of players we are involved with, coach at a very high level, will, will not be confident at each one of these levels. I can guarantee it. So what, what would that look like for you? So if you were, um, and clearly this is a function you fulfil at Montpellier, if you are contact skills coach, what would a... A perfect week look like for someone like you? Yeah, well, I'm always, you're always working for time. You know, it's the classic coaching, uh, you know, we've not got enough time, we've not got enough time. It's funny, there's a lot of time actually in a week. If it's organised properly, everybody can get their time. But there's a lot of one-to-one -one stuff has been done over the last three or four years, especially when the whole tackle area became this huge uh, flashpoint. And a lot of players 
especially some of your Southern Hemisphere players that have been used to tackling what a class is chess tacklers. And they've come up through that since their college, university days, through club and international. To then ask that player to tackle level one between ankle and knee is actually, if you've not trained it, you're not confident there, it can actually be more dangerous for the tackler. So we've spent a lot of time on the mats, uh, the low bags, especially the low heavy bags, just getting that used to getting your body down there again and getting into that level. Because if you've always tackled round about chest and then a coach or a defensive coach says, listen, I want you to start tackling legs below the knee, leg chops, it's, it's like, it's a different world. So although we talk about it and think, come on, you know, everybody must be able to do that. You're six foot six guy who's been hitting round about chest for the last four seasons and then is asking the defensive system to hit level one. It's, it's, a, it's a daunting task. Yeah, it was interesting. <clears throat> on the, even Ian Foster spoke about how little work they felt they'd done in that because prior to the World Cup, obviously, they brought in the kind of sanctions around the high tackle stuff and lowered yeah. it. And um, it was interesting just hearing that. So if you were, let's say you were Sunday morning dad, um, coaching the team they're just going to go into contact next season yeah. tell me some of the considerations tell me what what you would be doing and okay. maybe what your practices would look like well the lucky thing Rusty is I am that father because my, my boy's uh, nine years old so he, he just started tackling last year so you're involved oh, from, from the very bottom right to the very top and for me we, we, we actually don't spend enough time on tracking you know, we don't spend enough time on actually getting to the ball carrier. If you, if you think of every drill that we used to do, you're on your knees, somebody walked to your left, walked to your right, head in behind, wrap, fall, tight, squeeze, then off you went again. So you were always, and I've, I've had great debates about this when I think back to how I was coached, you always waited for the ball carrier to come to you. You, the, the tackler would stand on the line, the, the ball carrier would walk towards, then jog, then run, but you were standing rooted to the spot. So the first thing we've got to get is get off the line and go and meet the ball carrier, but be confident to do that. You know, That's the first thing. So I spend a lot of time on tracking, but even before that, I spend just as much time. I love grappling, the wrestling skills, just getting young players used to finding their way around another body and, and, and knowing, know where the bony bits are, you know? Know where the bits that could potentially hurt you are and get used to the, the other player's body and also the other player that's carrying the ball, make sure that they know how to fall and they know how to take contact as well. We always talk about the tackler, but we very rarely ever spend time talking about the ball carrier. So it's a, it's a two-person thing. So a lot of time on grappling, a lot of time on tracking. What about, the kids, what about the kids in your son's team that aren't confident? What, is, it, is that what you're saying? Actually more of that, more grappling, more wrestling? Yeah, before we even go to you running at me with a ball in that sort of confrontational one-on-one -on -one where a lot of mistakes can be made, get, get them used. A lot of youngsters don't wrestle now. They don't even play outside. You know, that, that's what they play with, you know, literally console. And so when I think how I was brought up, you'd be outside till 10 o'clock at night with 
with guys from five years old to 18 would be in one melee, you know? <laughs> and you'd be there till 10 o'clock at night, you'd come home, you'd be soaking with sweat, you'd have taken your bottle of water with you and it would be empty and you'd be, you'd be wrecked. Sometimes you wouldn't even have a bath, you'd be straight to bed, you know? And, and that's what you did. And then you went down and watched Gala Rugby Club play on a Saturday afternoon after the game, 25 aside, on the field, all ages, throwing your body into it, you know? I hardly see that now. I see youngsters covered in cotton wool, making sure they don't do this, don't do that. Society's dictated that don't let them play in the street just in case there's somebody there. Don't take them down the park just in case there's somebody there. So we're, we're, we're losing the concept to wrestle and quite a class is rough and tumble play. Tumble, yeah. Rough and tumble, you know? We're, we're losing it. We're, we're, we're breeding a society of sitting down, watching. Everything's done for you. It, it, it breaks me. It really does. But... So you've got to try and develop this sort of feeling of confidence in contact. Confidence, you know. The best tacklers you'll ever get, regardless of age, are confident in what they do. The ones that are tentative and hang off slightly, they're the ones that are going to get hurt. So, you know, that's the key for me. You've got to develop the wrestling, grappling skills along with tracking and make it fun, especially at that age, make it fun, tracking from different sides, create different games, put the colours on. I've even, it's funny, I've got them sitting here. Literally, stay there, Russell. Here we go, here we go. I created, I created these things myself, right? Because I thought, right, um, I've had enough of this because you see these tags that we all have, and we always put them around the waist, right? And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm trying to develop a youngster that's wanting to tackle at three different levels, there should be tags around his knee as well. So what I've done is I've created these. I've got a nice old lady to sew these for me in the local shop. And literally, they fit around the knee. I'll just show you this. Of course you are. They're the best thing I've ever, I've ever done. So there we go. Right, looking on the, good. On the knee, looking good, Russ, right? So... I've now got colour tags on the knees, left and right, and I've got colour tags on the hip, left and right. I've even put a dot on them because I want them to grab the actual dot. I don't want them to grab down here. They've got to go for the dot. And you can create a thousand drills with those, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they're fun, and it's something different, but what it's doing is it's developing different entry angles. So they're going down low, they're going down at hip height, and then we can even have a tag off on the chest, but I, I keep them away from that at the moment. Everything's wasting below for these youngsters. Nice, because the reality of, of the current version of tag is it doesn't really help people get close. It doesn't help them no. to grab in a little bit. No, it actually stops you. It stops you right on the hip, and you don't get your shoulder in. Don't get me wrong, everything's got a value somewhere, but... The tags are about that length as well, so you've got massive difference. So you've got to go to the dot, you know. I always remember Alan Tate. Uh, Tate is a good mate of mine who obviously played rugby league in Scotland. He lives in Kelso. They used to talk smash the dot was literally the, the, the belly button, you know. So it always came on square. So the league kids were told to smash the dot, which all of a sudden squares you up, shoulder 
into that area. It's one of the softest parts of your body. It's not a hip. And, and you know, little, little things like that really work, you know? Nice, mate. I love the way you're inventing even more kit. <laughs> even, for, even for eight and nine-year-olds, I can't stop. <laughs> what? I, I mean, I would, I talked about it a lot, but I would just play more rugby-type games where they hold each other up or they grapple or... Yeah, as you you know, just make the pitch a little bit narrower for some of the kids, a little bit less deep, so yeah, the big fella doesn't get the run up. But we just, as you say, just get much more rough and tumble going on. Yeah, just <laughs> but just in a structured environment, you know. But we, we've got to we've got to harden our youngsters up. You know, they're they're living in a life now, and like here you go. I feel like I'm 50 years old now. You know, the old boy, but. They're sitting watching televisions. When I walk, you know, down the street that I, I live on, and you kind of sometimes on a seven thirty, eight o'clock at night, look into a window. They're, they're sitting there, you know, glued to the screen, or they're speaking to their pals, playing some game. Now, don't get me wrong, but you know, it's not going to develop the next set of, you know, accurate, hard-hitting tacklers, is it? Possibly not. <laughs> what, what was your time in Scotland like? Because obviously, that's uh, you know one of the I guess Scotland are the Blitzbucker, really, aren't they? They've got, they don't have so many big fellas. Yeah, I tell you, I, I loved working with Scotland. And, uh, you know, I was incredibly lucky. Vern Cotter asked me once I'd finished with South Africa, phoned me up and said, listen, you're back in Scotland. How do you fancy coming up and just doing some consultancy around the breakdown contact area? Uh, and again, I, I like a challenge, Rusty. So the Blitzbox to me, I remember I was told on the first day, listen, we're the smallest team in the circuit, X, Y, Z, brilliant. You know, just give me give me guys that you can, everybody's written off. And and Scotland's been like that for, for years, you know. And sadly, it's our biggest weakness because, you know, if we're, if we're favourites, we just about, you know, crap ourselves. So it, that's the problem. And that's the mentality of Scotland. It's this sort of, the world's against us nobody rates us, then yes, we'll come out and give it our best shot, you know, so we've got to try and get rid of that, but Scotland's got some really good rugby players, it's got some good rugby players, uh, it's been a tough old season again this year, wasn't the greatest of World Cups, but in my opinion, there, there is definitely a group there that if you can get them together, the biggest problem is injury for Scotland, if you get a number of injuries, there's not a huge amount of depth, but when I look at guys like Hamish Watson, Jamie Ritchie at the moment, young Sutherland who's come back onto a game at prop, uh, Xander Ferguson, you've got Fraser Brown there. They're, you know, there's, there's good rugby players there. And I tell you, we're talking about the new laws. These new laws could really suit a team, you know, with the individuals that they have. Uh, so, no, I really enjoyed my time there. It'd be great to actually get back and, and do some more work with them again. Uh, and again, it's your country, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day, I love my coaching. I've coached all over the world, but there's something special about coaching your town uh, or coaching or coaching your country, you know, and I'll, I'll, that'll never leave you. Nice. What about, uh, tell me about coaching in France. What was that like? That must be, I, I, lots of people tell me lots of stories about coaching in France. Um, it's slightly different, isn't it? It is slightly different, Rusty. I think... Uh, so, in my coaching career, I get told, you'll not last there. Nobody's ever lasted there, right? Okay, I'll go there, right? So, I remember before I went to South Africa, somebody said to me, uh, 
it was in the first press conference I arrived there. I think I told you this story in Paris that I walked out of the first press conference and this guy grabbed me, just like literally tugged my jersey and just said, I'll give you six weeks. And that was it, right? I'll give you six weeks. And I thought, oh, great, great, great start to the career. So uh, I never saw him again. I think he was a friend of one of the journalists, but I ended up lasting three and a half years. one of the longest serving foreign coaches they've ever had there. So, so that was good. And then, you know, it's funny, France again, guys are saying to me, what you go to France for? Jeez, it's like, you'll not enjoy it down there. It's very difficult to coach and whatever. So I was incredibly lucky because obviously I went with Vern. Uh, I had Nathan Hines there. Ian Vass was there, who's now with Northampton doing defence. Uh, Alex King was there. So it was a real, you know, English-speaking Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere coaching group, which was great. But I learned a lot. In three years, I've learned a huge amount about French rugby. I love French rugby, right? I, I think it epitomises everything that's old school in the game is eight o'clock, Saturday night in Agen. They've been on the red wine since three o'clock in the afternoon. Buffet, lovely food, out they come, and it's just baying for blood for 80 minutes. And it reminds me of the old Border League Gala Hoyt games, and there's something old school about it, but it's brilliant, you know? And France, to me, is still a country, phenomenal talent. Uh, they've obviously brought in this chief rule now where you have to have a number of French players in the team, which I think if I was in charge of French rugby, I would have done as well. Uh, just incredible emotion. It's, it's, it's a league that's run on emotion, which is great, but also it can be your biggest weakness. So that, that's what I've had to learn in France, and again, I'm all, I've always said, an American football coach said this to me years ago, I don't coach players, I coach people. And, and it's still, it, it lasts the testament to time, wherever you go, I don't coach players, I coach people. And you've got to understand people first. That's regardless of what country you go to, regardless of what team you play or coach, you've got a mix of nationalities, a whole range of different attitudes and you've got to get in tune with that first before you can even start coaching. How, uh, give me some examples. How, how have you done that at, uh, at Montpellier? Yeah, so, you know, I think in some ways you make, I've always done this in my coaching, you try and, I don't ever go away, right? So I'm always in your head the whole time and I, I do that in many different ways, right? I've, I've done it with stickers and lifts. I've put things in team hotels. I've got things in weights rooms. The text and social media thing now is great. So you've got signs, you've got words, you've got sayings that you might just put through and everybody understands it. But I quite enjoy that whole shared mental model way of coaching where all your coaching comes down to maybe five or eight words. And each word has phenomenal meaning, but you've got to be really choosy on what word you pick because it's got to relate to the group you've got as well. So it could be something French, it could be something to do with the area, gladiatorial, it could be an animal, it could be a fighting style, it could be a, a type of, uh, it, could be a, it could be a type of a piece of armour or it depends right it can be a picture give me some examples so this is 
this would be like theming for me, really. But you, yeah, it is. It's exactly that. So it could be, for example, you know, one hour from Montpellier is one of the most beautiful kept uh, Roman gladiatorial fighting arenas you'll ever see in Nîmes. Phenomenal, and you know, you can sometimes take things from that you know, fighting styles, different gladiatorial bits of combat that you can then bring maybe into a defensive turnover strategy, for example. And it's funny how language very quickly gets picked up. So, for example, a jackal could be classed as a, you know, I say it was called the guillotine or whatever, but it's just, it's got some sort of connotation with a group. And we spent a lot of time like naming drills why did we call certain drills a certain thing? And I've done that wherever I've gone and you get huge buy-in because the players are involved in it as well. It's not just always coming from me. So, you know, what are we going to call this technique? What's it going to be called? Right, we'll call this the Toro, right? Okay, the Toro it is. So that's it, it become, becomes the Toro, you know? And the Toro has got certain traits to it. There's certain techniques to it. So you go and watch a live sort of when they're charging the bulls and whatever and you have a look at that and you take things from it and it relates to the the players crazy stuff like that but i've done it in a number of places that i've gone it works really well so i've been doing it for the last 10 years so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna change it (laughs) feels all my biases what what other stuff would would people see if they watched you coach so as well as that so importance of language yeah I think, you know, for, for me, Russell, I just want to make you better. You know, so I've always said this, like, I coach to make players better and to stay in the game. That's why I coach, right? I love the game. I've been born and brought up in it. My father was a coach. He coached the south of Scotland, coached phenomenal players, Roy Laidlaw, John Rutherford, Jim Rennick. I could name them all, kind of in the height of the south of Scotland rugby days. I wish the team was still here. Sadly, it's not. Uh, so you've been brought up in that huge rugby background, winning, losing, dealing with injury, dealing with a rugby mentality, the player. I've got brothers. We all played. Uh, I've got a mother who pretty much, you know, knows more about rugby than most guys I meet. You know, uh, my wife enjoys rugby. Her brother's a rugby referee in Yorkshire. Uh, you know, so you're you're just that's just what you do, you know, you are who you are because of what you've come through, incredibly passionate about what a coach, I love coaching, I want to make you better, there's nothing better for me than working with a guy for three, four, five weeks and then seeing what we've been working on happen at the very, very top end of the game, under immense fatigue, under all the pressure that can be thrown at him and he, and he does the job that that's more for me than than you know anything else uh, you know so no and I, you love your players you you want to do best by them and and you want to we want to win you know that's the bottom line i don't you don't want to coach players you don't want to enjoy standing behind the posts you know you you've got to you've got to get out and fight so you know, that, that's it. And you, you are who you are. You're a, you're a product of where you come from. I'm from the borders, Gala Shields, big rugby area. You know, fools not suffer gladly. Don't try and get ahead of yourself. Don't try and take yourself too serious either. 
Uh, Vern Cotter always said that to me. He said, the one thing he always says is, don't ever take yourself too seriously. It's such a great comment. Just enjoy what you do and just remain, keep your feet in the ground. And remember, in our world, you can be out of work tomorrow with a bag of two defeats. So, <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. What, um, so Vern Cotter's obviously influenced you in lots of ways, it would seem. <clears throat> How and who else? Who else would you count as mentors? Uh, or? I've been, Russell, I've been incredibly lucky with the coaches I've worked with. I've had Jim Telfer as a boss. I've had Richie Dixon as a boss. Ian McGeechan was obviously up in Scotland. I've had some phenomenal club coaches, old school, you know, spitting sawdust. My father, uh, guys like Johnny Brown, who you'll not have heard of, uh, Gary Callender, ex-Scottish captain. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, you've got the coaches you've worked with, the Heineken Mayor, fantastic human being, good man. Uh, Vern, possibly one of the most brutally honest coaches I've ever worked with. Some people like that, some people don't. But what, do you mean, what do you mean by brutally honest? I'll just tell you exactly how it is, exactly. And some people like to hear that, some people don't. But, you know, there's no point in beating around the bush. You may as well just say it as it is. And if there's a trust there between everybody, you'll understand that he's wanting the best for you. And that's exactly, that's exactly it. You know, and Vern's been excellent. Great rugby man. Knows French rugby inside out as well. So it was great to... To bounce ideas off and has been around a long time, huge amount of knowledge. You know, I don't think you know it all because you, you learn every day. You know, you learn every day. And I've, I've just, I'm incredibly lucky. Everybody I've worked with, you know, I've worked with a huge amount of coaches. You've, they're all just trying to do their best, you know. And it's funny, Rusty, I think where we are now, there's, there's not many sort of, most, especially in the professional era, everybody understands how hard a job it is. You know, it's it's not an easy job, right? Everything's great when you're winning, but you know, you're not always winning. There's only one coach can lift the trophy at the end of the year. Everybody else hasn't lifted it, you know. So you've got all of those things to cope with, and the highs and the lows. And but you just got to remain, just keep your integrity, work hard, be honest. And just enjoy what you do and just give as much as you can. And if you give, you get. It's as simple as that. You know, any coach that ever phones me, you can, I'll give you anything you want to know. It doesn't, doesn't bother me because at the end of the day, we're working in different environments and you are who you are, you know? Nice, great summary. I'm going to finish with some warm words. <clears throat> I've just written a couple down that have got me excited. So, um, um, and, and just quickly, where can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you? Where's yeah, look, I'm, I'm, on, uh, I'm on the social media, although I don't use it that much, uh, at Richie Gray, uh, at, at Richie Gray GSI. Uh, obviously, you can get a hold of me there. And not too far, if you look at any training aid across the world, usually it's been invented in a garage in Gala. <laughs> so get a hold of me that way, you know, but that's the best way to get me, just through, through that. And there's a direct message if you want to send anything through or, or, or ask a question. I'm, I'm always pretty good at getting back to you. Uh, and apart from that, it's, it's a great opportunity just to speak coaching and rugby, Rusty. You know, I think with this whole uh, environment that we're in at the moment, it's, it's not good at all. You know, it's horrific, actually, when you see people losing their lives. But, you know, it, it gives people a chance to connect in different ways and that's what we're all doing the rugby coaching community 
had some phenomenal discussions in the last four or five weeks on, on, on this. So, you know, you've got to just make the best out of a bad situation and then come out of it stronger. Nice. Cool. I'm going to hit you with some more words. <coughs> uh, Scotland. Scotland. Passion. Gala Shields. Home. England. Uh, my wife's English. Close, <laughs> close friends. Oh, wow. You're going to say enemies. Um, nah. Vern Cotter. Uh, honest. Jim Telfer. Jim Telfer. Jeez, I, I don't want to say passion too many times, but, you know, he epitomises that. But Jim Telfer's just uh, desperate. Desperate, nice. Uh, South Africa. South Africa, just uh, for me, uh, life changing. Uh, top 14. Top 14. Marathon. <laughs> <laughs> thought you were going to say crazy, but it is a ridiculously long season. Oh, it's a marathon. It's an absolute marathon. Uh, last but by no means least, Peter Walton. Pete Walton. Yeah. Uh, Pete Walton. Anik. <laughs> the only time I, I don't think of Pete Walton. I always think of Andrew Hudson. He's a great mate of his. And uh, Anik boy. And I remember Pete played in the back row. Gala played North, Northampton. Can you believe it? In the professional era, when wow. Gala was completely amateur, we used to play Northampton every second year. And they were fully pro, you know. And... Pete was in the back row, you had Grayson's, you had, they were all there, Bayfields, uh, Budge Poutney. It was an all-star international team against a group of gala guys who were completely amateur. And I always remember Bayfield going off and this young kid saying to me, hey, Rich, Bayfield's gone off, like that, you know. And then Chandler came on. You remember Chandler that played yeah. in the lock, the big New Zealander, he was about five inches bigger than Bayfield. Thinking, oh no! So I said, "Son, you better get ready for another twenty minutes of hell here." So, oh. uh, great, great times. Good times, mate. It's been a pleasure. I love listening to you talk. Great story, Taylor, and mate, real good insight there around the context stuff. So, uh, have a great day, and we'll uh, catch up soon. Russell, take it easy. Always good to speak to you, my man. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, mate.